I'm Chris Reback. This is Investigating Breast Cancer, the podcast of the Breast Cancer Research Foundation and conversations with the world's leading scientists studying breast cancer prevention, diagnosis, treatment, survivorship, and metastasis. Well, get ready for a journey. Not only is Dr. Funmi Olapati a preeminent oncologist and geneticist renowned for her expertise in breast cancer, as well as her research that has advanced early detection, treatment, and prevention of breast cancer in high-risk women, but, as you'll hear, her path to get there offers an extraordinary tale of its own. It began in Nigeria, accelerated at warp speed at Chicago's Cook County Hospital and the University of Chicago, and now includes Nigeria and other sub-Saharan African locations. It also includes the story of how being the daughter of an Anglican pastor was integral to her medical pursuits. More about Dr. Olapati. She serves as the founding director of the Cancer Risk Clinic and Associate Dean for Global Health at the University of Chicago. Dr. Olapati has received honorary degrees from multiple universities, a MacArthur Foundation Genius Fellowship, and Officer of the Order of the Niger Award, among many other honors, including being elected as a member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. Her work has focused on many areas, including extensive clinical work surrounding the role of the BRCA1 and BRCA2 genes in the incidence of breast cancer in women of African descent. She's been a BCRF investigator since 2001. Before our conversation, though, an ask from me to you. I hope you like these investigating breast cancer conversations. If so, I'd appreciate if you'd take a moment, go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, and if you're so moved, leave a five-star review. The ratings really matter. They go a long way to helping other people find the podcast. Thank you for considering my request. Here's my conversation with Dr. Funmi Olapati. Dr. Olapati, thank you for joining me. I appreciate your time. Thank you for having me. So in reading about you, it seems obvious to me that we really ought to start with your personal story. I mean, not everyone is the Nigerian-born daughter of an Anglican pastor, MacArthur Fellow, tumor-suppressing gene-finding scientist, associate dean of global health, medical entrepreneur, and by my count, that's only about 10% of what you've done in your life. So w would you mind starting at the beginning? W where did you grow up in Nigeria? And when did you decide you were going to become a globally renowned oncologist and scientist? Wow, that's a loaded question. <laughs> I know. Those are, those are the only kind I ask, you know. <laughs> well, you know, this audience is really important one because I do care about breast cancer and I care about all of the work that the Breast Cancer Research Foundation has supported. I didn't start up wanting to become a famous oncologist. I grew up in Nigeria, um, went to boarding school uh, when I was 12 years old. And so I consider myself really one of those um, privileged Nigerians who mm. had the best education that Nigeria could provide. Um, I went to an all-girls school and then went to the University of Ibadan where I went for my medical studies. Now, Nigerian education system was really structured towards the British system. So mm. we had the O-levels, A-levels, and then you went straight to the university. And uh, I think it was about from three, uh, that's when you're 15, 16 years old, that you sort of get tracked into whether you were going to do sciences or you were going to the arts. And um, I remember toying briefly with the idea of maybe becoming a lawyer, but my parents really wanted a doctor in the family. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, growing up as a uh, pastor's daughter. And, you know, on many occasions, I saw my father praying for people to get well, and they didn't get well. And so I think he really wanted you know, 
one of his children to be a medical doctor. So I happened to be number five of six. Mm. And so I would say I went to medical school screaming and kicking because I would have rather, you know, done physics or something more mathematical. Hmm. But here we are. Here we are. Is, <laughs> <laughs> now, it, it, is your father still alive, or did he remain alive long enough to see you become a doctor? I'm curious, how, how did a, a, a man of faith feel about uh, his daughter going into the sciences? Well, you know, I think, you know, in those good old days, uh, history will have it that good people either went into medicine, law, or they became pastors. Ah. Uh, and so I think uh, he had the, you know, he took advantage of the opportunity he had and uh, was educated by missionaries, of course. And so he went to divinity school and he, he was a theologian and became a pastor. But I think he already, or really was very uh, intellectually curious and always wondered about science. And so, you know, I have uh, my siblings before me who uh, went into economics and engineering. And one of my siblings is a a veterinary doctor and a nurse. Mm. But uh, I was sort of his last hope to become a doctor. (laughs) (laughs) And so, and that's why I did go to medical school. And, um, And I really just... I think appreciated the fact that growing up in Nigeria where the resources were scarce to actually impact uh, people who got sick, that there was still a lot that was unknown about the human condition. And uh, and so I, 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 I went to University of Ibadan Medical School, which is, and I still believe it remains the best medical school in Nigeria. Um, they really had outstanding faculty who were outstanding clinicians. And uh, we knew the diagnosis for any disease, or at least we thought we knew it, uh, by talking to patients, touching patients, and then really having very broad differentials. However, when I got to the United States and, um, you know, I had followed my brother who was a PhD student at Stanford, you know, my option was to start at Cook County Hospital. And that was really when I saw the need for more research to understand cancer. And I I became fascinated by cancer research. And so coming to the University of Chicago for my research training and post uh, postdoctoral training i was fortunate to have been a postdoc with one of the best cancer geneticists of our time um Janet Rowley who was studying chromosomes and leukemia and at that time you know we had the level of resolution of being able to do chromosome preps cut chromosomes and look for changes in chromosomes. And I remember when I went to talk to her in the laboratory, she said, oh, no, 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 this technology is not going to be here for the future. You should study molecular genetics. You Mm. should study molecular biology and then apply that uh, to problems in solid tumor because at that time it was really very hard for us to um, culture cells from solid tumors. And so that's really how I uh, began working in the lab with one of the best uh, human beings, uh, who was also a great scientist, uh, Janet Rowley. And I want to ask you about that in a moment. But before we get there, you passed over and let me be clear, I asked this as a (laughs) born and raised Chicago. How in the world did you end up at Cook County, you talk about, you know, challenging resources in Nigeria, having grown up in, in what you saw in med school there. Cook County Hospital, particularly in the 80s, that was a pretty tough place. You surely saw everything there. Oh, absolutely. And actually, it was really uh, 
just one of those things that happen to you when you're young and foolish and idealistic and not really thinking much about the world. Because, you know, I came to visit my brother at Stanford and then I, of course, wanted to see whether I could train at Stanford or UCSF. And, you know, going for the interview at UCSF, I was told, well, you know, they didn't really take international graduates. Mm. And since, of course, you know, the, my background from Nigeria wouldn't have been up to standard for people who are trained here, um, you know, they gave me the advice of to look for county hospitals and that maybe if I started at a county hospital, I may be able to walk my way up. You know, I, I thought that was the best advice anyone gave me. I happened to have uh, had a friend um, who uh, was in the university with us, but now was living, going to school in Chicago. So my then boyfriend and I, you know, came to Chicago. Um, I think it was the day after Labor Day that I had my interview at County Hospital. Mm. It was beautiful day and I got a job right there and then because, of course, they were short-staffed. And they needed doctors. Any one body that was available was hired to come and work at county. Sure. Uh, but because I wasn't married and I hadn't planned to leave Nigeria, I told them I couldn't take the job, but that I would, you know, go home, get the blessings of my parents, and then um, consider coming back. Uh, but I, you know, I say that because I really had no idea how cold Chicago was. But <laughs> yes, I was. I was going to say I'm very glad. It's good for the rest of us that your interview was the day after Labor Day and not three months later. Right, right. And so you know, as soon as I I got back to Nigeria and I had had a wonderful summer in America. In fact, President Carter had you know really encouraged Nigerians to travel and discover America. So mm. that was how, you know, you know, right after, you know, graduating medical school, doing my rotating internship, which was what you did uh, to before you actually got your license to practice, I then, you know, just took off to spend some time uh, traveling across America. And I loved it. It was just totally uh, beautiful. I thought everything was big in America, yeah. and, um, you know, while many Nigerians would have, you know, opted to go for postgraduate studies in the UK, I just couldn't wait to get back here. So once they offered me the job, I thought, well, how about starting right after Christmas? <laughs> and so that was how I ended in Chicago in January. Wow. And I'd never seen snow before, and I, it was it was kind of really interesting. You read about it, you thought about it, but um, you know, as the plane landed, I saw snow on the ground, and I didn't even know how I was going to walk on it. Um, but here I am. Here you I'm are. Still yes, here. And, it, <laughs> and it's it's funny you mentioned it. Yes, you're right. It it does snow every once in a while in Chicago. No, <laughs> no, no, and and I'm I'm really wondering which one of us you know should one of us give UCSF a call and let them know what they missed out on, or just should we forget that whole part? Just well, you know, one of my best collaborators and best friends is Laura Esserman. So we talk about UCSF all the time. Ah. I collaborate with them. I work with them. And, you know, it's just one of those things. It's really, um, you know, it's really the case that we have different um, ways of training in uh, in medicine and biomedical research enterprise depends on, you know, what you have available in your country. So I, I don't fault them for not of, wanting... No, of course, I'm just teasing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm just teasing. How, how significant was it, and how rare was it, um, that you trained um, with a female scientist, as you did at... Uh, Uni- I guess that was at University of Chicago. Yeah, well, you know, it's really one of those things that I really appreciate about the University of Chicago. At the time that I was looking to join a lab... We had some powerful women who were absolutely fantastic scientists. Of course, Dr. Ali being one of them, Lenny Fuchs and uh, Susan Lindquist. 
And these women uh, were top-notch doing cancer research at the University of Chicago. And, um, and Janet said, you know, before you settle on a lab, just go and interview a lot of people. And I can tell you, I interviewed four or five wonderful female scientists uh, who could have been good mentors for me. And it boiled down to choosing whether I would work with Dr. Rowley or with Lenny Fuchs. And mm. Lenny Fuchs, of course, is a famous uh, scientist who is at the Rockefeller. And we see each other now and sort of joke about that moment <laughs> in time. And uh, and she, what she, what it came down to Lenny saying, well, you know, you're a doctor. I'm just not sure about doctors in my laboratory <laughs> because I don't know. It may be just so basic, and I don't know if that would be a good match for you. And um, and then, you know, Dr. Ali saying, well, you know, I just was having a lot of fun collecting stamps, and all you know, my children thought I was doing stamp collection when I was cutting chromosomes and mm. trying to understand chromosomes in cancer. And I thought, you know, I'm a doctor. I really love being a doctor. And it probably would be a lot easier for me to begin to think about translational medicine as bringing questions from the clinic to the laboratory instead of the reverse, where you spent time understanding mechanisms in the lab. And then you said, oh, by the way, does it work in the clinic? And so that was really what Dr. Rowley imparted on us, was that, you know, if you really want to solve the problem of cancer, bring a problem from the clinic, get samples from the patient, and then let's study it in the laboratory. And that really was just uh, an amazing period where we had... Uh, you know, giants like Dr. Rowley had described chromosome rearrangements in leukemia and in cancer. And now the next generation of postdocs in the laboratory now needed to find out what were the genes that are in this chromosomal rearrangement? What are the genes that are in the deletions? And that's really how I started looking for tumor suppressor genes because there was a really good model that, you know, you will find deletions. And then if you mapped the area of deletion, you might be able to come in and find um, tumor suppressor genes. So the 80s really gave us a good uh, foundation in terms of the link between chromosomal abnormalities and cancer. And then the 90s, really, uh, we were equipped to be able to clone one gene at a time, figure out one translocation at a time, then, you know, go back to the lab, try to find out what these genes did. And then, of course, once you identify genes, then you have to look at their function and then, of course, figure out whether you can target them um, for treatment. Why do African-American women and women of African descent often develop breast cancer at younger ages than Caucasian women? The question uh, about uh, genes and cancer really um, became, okay, so what causes all these um, deletions and chromosomal breaks in uh, cancer cells? And are people predisposed to getting cancer? And if they are, how do you find them? So that was sort of the other thing that happened in the 90s, was that as we started looking at tumor suppressor genes, we also had a, 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 a parallel uh, process where a human geneticists had actually mapped disease genes to different chromosomes. And I remember a really wonderful collaboration that I had with Max Kolnick at, uh, uh, at University of Utah. He was mapping uh, families at risk for melanoma. And it so happens that it was the same region that I was mapping on chromosome 9. And that's why um, uh, I got really interested in um, whether there are inherited alleles, inherited mutations that could point us to um, 
sort of ways to prevent cancer. And so while I was mapping chromosome 9, of course, other investigators were mapping the region for breast and ovarian cancer uh, on chromosome 17. And the same chromosome 17 also harbored the HER2 gene that is frequently amplified in HER2 positive breast cancer. And so, you know, I became really good uh, friends with uh, Mary Claire King, who wanted to collaborate to find families with breast and ovarian cancer, and also very good friends with Dennis Lehman, who had actually defined HER2 gene amplification and HER2 gene uh, really becoming very important in uh, in breast cancer. Um, you know, Dennis Lehman did his um, training at the University of Chicago, and he also had been inspired by Dr. Rowley. So early on in my career, um, I really I ran into him. We uh, uh, did a study together looking at um, treating women with HER2 positive breast cancer and finding that just by developing Herceptin that could target the genetic abnormality in this uh, tumors that you really had a dramatic response in women who ordinarily would have died within two years of having metastasis. And, you know, as you know, University of Chicago is on the south side of Chicago. Um, I was beginning to see uh, women come to me because they had a family history. They tended to be young when they developed their breast cancer. And then I also um, saw African-American women, many of them very young, who also came with, you know, aggressive breast cancer. And so that's how we began to really look at who has HER2 mutation, uh, HER2 amplification in their tumor that could get test, you know, testing and then be able to get on a clinical trial to be able to be treated with Herceptin. And then who had BRCA1 mutation? Because in 1994, um, BRCA1 was identified and Myriad Genetics, uh, by that time, uh, Max Kolnick had started um, Myriad Genetics. And so, you know, they approached me if I had families that they could test uh, as part of their beta test. And lo and behold, we found, you know, some of these young African-Americans that we had recruited to our study had mutations in BRCA1. And then shortly after that, BRCA2 was identified. So that really uh, got me very interested in what's driving young onset breast cancer. Because the face of breast cancer in Nigeria was that of a young woman. Of Mm. course, you know, the population, we didn't have too many old women uh, in Nigeria, given that the uh, average lifespan was 52. Um, So I really got very interested in trying to understand why young women develop breast cancer and whether there's a commonality, whether you were black or white. um, And then if there was a commonality, what was that? And that's what got us uh, really collaborating. Um, You know, another collaborator that I still enjoy collaborating with is um, Chuck Peru. Chuck Peru, too, had come through uh, Chicago. He was uh, uh, actually, before going to grad school, was a technician here. So, you know, I ran into him at a um, Gordon conference, and we got talking. His sister was one of my colleagues and friends at the University of Chicago, and I was like, oh, I know you. You look like your sister. (laughs) And then we started really chatting about, um, you know, what he had discovered at the time, which is you know, the gene expression patterns in different tumor types. And so this basal-like breast cancer happened to be really common and very, uh, you know, significant for women with inherited BRCA1 mutation. And so we started really then thinking about how we could use gene expression uh, signatures to understand heritable factors for breast cancer. And so I really uh, began looking for 
additional genes that were not BRCA1 and BRCA2. So we did genome-wide association studies, and we um, were fortunate to get an idea grant funded by the Department of Defense. Uh, this was in 1998, because I just thought, you know, I had this idea that is it possible that there's a link between young women getting breast cancer in Nigeria and and African Americans? What is you know how much of a, of a African ancestry made you get aggressive young onset breast cancer? And uh, and so that the 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 uh, story evolved because for a very long time uh, the conventional wisdom was that oh these women denied that they had a problem, so it took them a, a while to get to the doctors. Uh, but what we found was that, you know, contrary to previous opinion that, oh, breast cancer grew very slowly, so you could go in maybe uh, in Europe, you could go in every two years to go and have your uh, mammogram. Uh, we, I started saying, look, these women, when I talked to them, they would tell you they had a mammogram that was normal last year, or some of them they had a you know they they even at the time we diagnosed their breast cancer, the mammogram was normal because there's some uh, uh, breast cancers that just don't show up on a mammogram, and so I became really uh, really concerned that if I you know recommendation is that when you turn to fifty or or if you get to 40, go and get your mammogram. And here were all these young women getting breast cancer before they were 40. How were they going to get diagnosed early? And so that's why I really was um, pushing that we should have more uh, broader access to genetic testing. And, um, you know, I wrote an editorial in the New England Journal in 1996 saying, you know, the only people who aren't getting tested for BRCA1 are people who don't understand the biology. Because I, I assumed once we found the gene and we know how what the gene does, that the gene will increase your risk for cancer. To me, it was a no-brainer. Why wouldn't everybody want to know whether they have that mutation? But it turned out that um, the medical community was not ready and the genetics community certainly had not really dealt with the idea that, you know, you should be testing people for adult onset cancer, right? They're born with a genetic mutation, mm. but they are not getting cancer until their 30s or 40s. So what do you do? How do you tell them? What are the interventions? So I, um, I, I was appointed... Um, chair of the ASCO Cancer Genetics Task Force. Yes. And, uh, uh, and I think it was really my, my background from Nigeria and my training uh, that prevention and, and is better than cure. And uh, we were told that preventive and social medicine was really key as a doctor. You couldn't wait to treat cancer. You couldn't put the patient outside of the context of their social environment. So my medical training really emphasized preventive and social medicine. And so I just, I became a real, uh, you know, fanatic in terms of really making sure that we could, uh, you know, get other oncologists to adopt, um, you know, the ASCO Cancer Genetics Task Force uh, to make it a business of oncologists to find high-risk families and to develop interventions to help them so that they don't have to wake up one day and find that they have advanced triple negative breast cancer. And that's really why and how I got into looking at, you know, African-American uh, patients and, you know, trying to figure out what is genetics, what is, you know, poverty. And certainly, you know, Chicago is full of, full of rich black women, uh, you know, middle class black women who yes. are, you know, uh, you know, police officers, teachers who are not only, uh, you know, living in, in poverty. And so the more I see the variety of black women who are coming in with um, triple negative breast cancer, the, 
the more I, I refused to accept the fact that it was all poverty and the social determinants. And I really wanted to study the biologic de- determinants of aggressive breast cancer. It's so interesting because you started to address what was going through my mind, which is what was it about you that was driving questions that others weren't asking? And, you know, there were so many historical assumptions and you were asking questions and and pushing boundaries um, in directions that others just weren't. And I, I was wondering to myself, is this because of where you came from? Was it because of coming from Nigeria, your education there? Was it because you started out as a medical doctor? And so maybe that training, and it, it you know makes me think of uh, uh, your interview where, you know, that you were talking, you know, the, the, the scientist was talking about, uh, you know, you're having been a medical doctor going to the lab as opposed to the other way around. Or is there just a curiosity within you that's just part of who you are and that drives what what do you think you know encouraged you inspired you to ask questions that you know so many others weren't asking well i mean you know i i i know maybe it's because certainly it's because of my training as a physician but i also know that uh you know if you are the daughter of a pastor, there are many more questions than <laughs> answers. And so I think, you know, uh, growing up, my father actually really encouraged us to ask questions because I think he himself must have been baffled about this God that would be afflicting so many misery on human beings. And so I think it's, it started off with really, uh, you know, having been uh, brought up to ask questions. And so and the conventional wisdom was also always uh, the case uh, in our medical school that, you know, you know, the British will ask you at your oral exam to give 10 causes of an ailment. And the thing is, you have to think about all the possible 10 reasons why somebody has a symptom. And so by having to think about broad differential diagnosis, my brain, I guess, was trained to always ask, okay, what else can it be? Mm. Why else should we be looking at this? And so I think uh, it was partly my, you know, upbringing at home to ask questions, to question God in a way. And then the other part of it is that there's so many things that were unknown and uh, and i think the scientific method is the only way where you always have to keep asking questions and so i think that got me to really not always accept that okay this is the answer when we unfortunately hadn't even asked the questions and so my you know the the uh, when i was at cook county hospital there was always the case when people died, you know, wanting to know why did they die? And so in my medical school, we always wanted to get an autopsy because of course we didn't have CT scans and we didn't have all of those things. And so when I was a chief resident at County, uh, one of my duties was to make sure I met with families and then I asked them if they would allow us to do autopsy. And, you know, that year that I was chief resident, I think our autopsy rate was probably about 70%. Because when you explain to anyone, who, even when they're grieving, uh, that, look, you're going to help us learn about your family member that just died. Most people would just say, I give consent. And so at the University of Chicago, and when I also, you know, talk with my colleagues who think that, you know, black patients or African-Americans don't want to participate. That was never my experience. My experience was that they wanted to be part of the solution. They wanted to be part of studies. There there was never a patient of mine that I asked to consider a clinical trial who didn't say, okay, sign me up for it. And so I felt like I really, you know, there's a trust uh, that the community had in me to ask questions and to help them find solutions. And so that was really my motivating factor was that, you know, I'm from this community. This community has a lot of questions and how come no one is studying them? And so it became a personal, uh, you know, passion of mine to 
actually do cross-continental uh, research because I also went to school completely free of debt in Nigeria. In fact, Nigeria gave me a, a, a scholarship, a bursary, to just enjoy my time in medical school. So I feel like I had to help contribute to scientific um, advances in Nigeria. So as soon as I was able to do that, I started collaborating with you know, uh, former colleagues and and uh, collaborators in Nigeria. I mean, they taught me a lot, and as I and I taught them too, and it became a really mutually beneficial partnership to do, um, you know, this cross continent collaboration. And are those the clinics? Is that the, the are those the clinics that you have opened and 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 started? And maybe you can tell me. Uh, about that, um, I, I, my understanding is uh, the first one was in Nigeria, um, and there's progress from there. Uh, so tell tell me about uh, the the clinics that you're offering um, in Africa. Yeah, so you know the good thing about um, what has happened uh, is that we now live in a global village. I mean, there's direct flight from Atlanta to Lagos. And um, and so um, in 2004, uh, we had a meeting in, you know, we, of professional women in Lagos, and we wanted to ask their opinion about what should we be doing? How should we be, you know, advancing some of this work that I am now able to do by collaborating with investigators in Nigeria? And they had a a, you know, a communique at the end of our workshop. It was a 10-point communique where they encouraged us not to just take samples out of Nigeria, but to actually build capacity. So we, of course, realized that majority of women that were developing breast cancer in Nigeria had estrogen receptor negative breast cancer. This is the most aggressive type of breast cancer. And it was 70% of them that had that. And that had never been reported in any medical journal. So when we tried to publish it in the Journal of Clinical Oncology, they thought it was, oh, it was just bad fixation. We just didn't do the correct um, experiment. So then Be, Because I, why? Because not numbers, they, they couldn't imagine that numbers could be that they high? They couldn't imagine the numbers could be that Right. And wow. so I, you know, after we studied the first 300, they wouldn't, you know, it was just not acceptable. Mm. So then I went to uh, Senegal to, uh, you know, collaborate with pathologists there. And then we went to Cameroon and then we went to Uganda. Uh -huh. And what we really wanted to do was, OK, what's going on? Is it why are these young women across this sub-Saharan countries getting breast cancer, and when they get it, they get it at a very young age, and they get estrogen receptor negative breast cancer. Yes. And so that just turned everything on its head. And, um, and then, because many of these patients, when we then ask them after they've given us their samples and we've studied them, and then we wanted to ask about the follow-up, and we would be told, well, you know, they came in, and because they couldn't afford treatment, they went back home and they were dead. And, you know, we couldn't get follow-up because they were dead. And, uh, you know, the surgeons who were working with us were frustrated because most of the women presented in advanced stages. Mm. Then we started sending our students. We brought, you know, we got a grant to bring doctors here. And we realized that, in fact, these women were showing up. They were so young. Some of the time they had just had a baby. So even when they showed up in the doctor's office or in a, a community health center, they were told they had a boil, they had an infection, they were given antibiotics, and they had no idea they were dealing with breast cancer. Mm. And so we then thought that, you know, the onus was on us to now raise awareness about the fact that there's a change in demographics. Women are no longer dying in childbirth. Women are no longer dying from infectious complications. In fact, women are now getting breast cancer. And that demographic change is happening all over the South, global South, all over Africa, all over Latin America. Yes. And so because 
um, we have been so successful in helping women survive. Now we have this uh, burden of chronic, non-communicable conditions. And so in a, in a country where people were not even thinking that breast cancer was a problem, doctors were not even trained. There was no word for breast cancer in Nigeria when we started our work. And so we then felt that it was really important, you know, getting these um, women professionals who were on top of their game, who were now part of the um, uh, uh, health systems, who they were now part of the government, they were now in industry, and they all gathered together with market women, and they said, yes, we're not dying. We want you to think about how to diagnose cervical cancer, how to diagnose breast cancer. And yes, we also want to participate in BRCA research, right? Maybe our women also have BRCA1 and BRCA2 mutation. We want access to that as well because we want to use it for prevention. So that's how we started now training uh, doctors to now be able to start uh, a cancer risk clinic so they can also offer this women genetic testing. And then, of course, we kept, you know, pushing and asking, and we were so fortunate to have funding from the Breast Cancer Research Foundation, who then said, oh, you know, we're going to fund your work in Nigeria. And not only are we going to fund your work in Nigeria, we're going to help you access drugs to treat these women in Nigeria, uh, because we're going to help you develop a clinical trials platform. Um, you know, there's one thing is to do genetics research, to do epidemiology research, to know so many things that were going on. But a different thing to actually say, we're going to put money to treat you so you have a chance to survive. And so we're uh, on our second clinical trial now, partly aided by money that we were able to raise in the U.S. to buy drugs, to get, you know, Roche uh, uh, pharmaceutical company to give us drugs so we can treat women and, and have the opportunity to cure many women. The first clinical trial we did was for Zoloda. It's an oral uh, uh, medication. And when we started, we, we thought this would be really great. This women come in with triple negative breast cancer. We give them a pill and the pill melts their cancer away. How remarkable would that be? Mm. And um, that study, uh, we couldn't finish it because we were looking for women who did not have metastasis. And for two and a half years, we could not find enough women who were not showing up with metastasis. So we, we, we closed that study and then we went back to the drawing board just trying to understand why is this cancer so aggressive in these women? Why couldn't we find women that were picked up at an early stage? We did the same in the uh, in Chicago. We started saying, why are these cancers uh, presenting so aggressively? And that's why we started, um, you know, using MRI uh, to screen these women. And instead of asking women with BRCA1 to get MRI once a year, we started saying maybe we should be doing it twice a year because these cancers are presenting as interval cancer. And we learned a lot uh, because, you know, some of these women came in and they didn't want to have bilateral mastectomy. They wanted another option. They wanted us to push prevention instead of um, just, you know, um, offering bilateral mastectomy to them. And I certainly learned a lot from these women. And you know, Chicago, it's Polish women. It's women from Ukraine. It's yes, African-American. Yes, it's, it's an incredible everything. melting pot. Yeah. Right. It's a melting pot. It's everybody. And, uh, and then, you know, as our clinic got more famous, we had people fly to us from all over. And some of them, because they were so, you know, used to plastic surgery, no matter what I told them, they were going to have both breasts removed and have plastic surgery. And then on the other hand, I went back to Cook County Hospital and I would tell them, you know, we should do prevention. And my African-American patient, I said, yeah, you know what, we're not into that yet. We have so many other things to worry about. Don't put this additional burden on us again because we're healthy now. So why would we be taking our body parts? And so that's why I've really felt like um, we can learn 
from our patients and patients come in div in diverse shapes and forms and my job as a doctor is to be able to meet patients wherever they are whatever they need to do and then what we don't know to study it indeed in preparing for this conversation i watched a 2009 video that you did and in it you said virtually the same thing and it was remarkable when i listened to it but now i'm hearing your philosophy and more of your approach and really what you i mean you redefine what it means translational i mean translational for you is not just uh connecting the lab and the medical office it's connecting continents and i hear the lessons and the through line of your story and what you've learned but in that 2009 video you said my patients are my best teachers absolutely you still feel that way absolutely absolutely the work now, um, the extending your research, the genomic biomarker based oncology clinical trials. Um, what's next on that on that work? Oh, I, you know, we're really very excited. Of course, now we have a pandemic, yeah. and we're all sort of shut down, and uh, and now we're thinking about what does this mean for health equity. And of course, we also have the Black Lives Matter and sort of the social unrest around social injustices. And so one of the uh, ethical framework that I've always used as a geneticist is that you really have to think about social justice. If you're born and you have a genetic mutation, right, the onus is on us to help you uh, live the best life possible. And so when I'm offering genetic testing and when we first started, the first woman who came from to me wrote a check for $2,500 and said, I'm just curious. I want to know. And by knowing that she had a BRCA1 mutation, you know, she saved the life of every woman and man in, in her family. Yes. Because she was proactive and she wrote that check even at the time when our medical community said it couldn't be done and it shouldn't be done. Mm. And I learned a lot from that woman. And I was thinking, how about that woman who has the same risk, but is totally unaware of it, is not educated enough to know about this or doesn't have... Or doesn't the have the $2,500 to, to write the check. Right. Doesn't have the $2,500 to write the check. What is my role as a healer mm. to reach out to that person? How do I use my voice as an advocate to make sure everybody has a chance? And so that's why I tend to work with a lot of advocacy groups. And my patients, I remember the first time that a patient of mine went to Springfield to lobby the Illinois uh, uh, yeah, the state capital in yeah, Illinois. The state yeah. capital in Illinois to say we have to cover genetic testing, and it was because it was compelling. Hmm. You know, my former governor um, was the first to approve genetic testing for patients on Medicaid because hmm. it just doesn't make any sense that because you don't have insurance, you cannot have the same access to genetic testing that somebody with, you know, third party payer or with money has. And so, and, you know, whether it's passing um, um, privacy laws, or I, I also remember going to then uh, Senator Obama um, at the time when he was first appointed to the Senate, going to work with the staffers, that we have to have precision medicine. And a lot of people mm. uh, would say, oh, precision medicine is going to take money away from what we should be doing about social determinants. But I knew how patients who came to me from northern Indiana at the time when we had clinical trials for Herceptin lived because they were able to get the test to find out that they had HER2 gene amplification. And that was a game changer mm. for me, was that. These patients are in northern Indiana. They just happened to think about coming to the University of Chicago. They were black patients, and they got into the clinical trial. And now 
what would have been a sure death for them became their alive because they came to the University of Chicago. And so not everybody in Chicago can come to the University of Chicago, but our best practices can be disseminated into the community. And we can partner with community doctors. We can accelerate the time it takes us to get these advances to everyone, right? So if there is a cure for breast cancer, our goal is to make sure that everyone in our global village knows about it and can be part of new treatments and movement to get women to live longer. And so I go back to when I first came to this country. It was the AIDS epidemic. I was at Cook County Hospital, mm. and our patients were dying. They were dying by the numbers. We yes. didn't even know what was going on. But then there was a whole idea around solidarity. And now we know that HIV AIDS, where we can eradicate it, we're developing vaccines, we have cocktail of drugs. The same thing. We should be thinking about cancer research as a research that we all have to participate in, doesn't matter where we live, whether we're in Nigeria, in uh, uh, Bolivia, anywhere we are in the world, there's knowledge that can be created. And so my goal is that precision medicine means precision medicine. We need to study every patient everywhere so that we can find the right drug for the right patient at the right time. And that's why I'm in a hurry and I'm impatient about how we have really been negligent as a scientific community in terms of helping to eliminate the barriers. Uh, The inequities are just unacceptable to me. And so this moment, uh, we have a pandemic and we know without testing, people are getting infected. So how about testing, testing, testing to personalize cancer care? Well, it's clear that this is a moment that you have come to naturally. And the, the totality of your experiences and, you know, the daughter of a pastor and the Nigerian education and starting life as a professional life as a medical doctor, uh, but then your research and the experience and clear love that you have for Chicago and the U.S. and the people of the world, um, you know, I, I can't help but feel that if there's somebody who's gay and the fact that, you know, you took a chance on, on this guy, Obama, I'm not really sure he's going to become anything. I kind of think you might be wasting your time there. But OK, you know, you, you, you make your own decisions. Uh, if anyone's going to be able to push testing, testing, testing on uh, cancer and uh, push us towards a cure, um, I think I'm going to put my $2,500 check and maybe even a little bit more on you. So thank you. Thank you so much for the work that you do and for taking the time to, uh, to tell me about it. Thank you very much. It's been a wonderful interview and I've enjoyed talking to you. Thank you for what you do. That was my conversation with Dr. Fumi Olapati. My thanks to Dr. Olapati for joining and you for listening. To learn more about breast cancer research or to subscribe to our podcast, go to bcrf.org slash podcasts.